This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 127. My guests are Anna Cabral-Gardner and Calvin Gardner, co-CEOs of Sigma Lithium. There is a lot of news related to their project in Brazil. They have recently started construction. We discuss that, and we also discuss... An investment by the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock, that closed the day before we recorded the podcast. This investment was part of a larger fundraising. You will hear the details of that. The BlackRock investment is particularly significant to Sigma because of BlackRock's emphasis on ESG investing, which has always been a cornerstone of Sigma's activity. We'll also talk about the market in general, along with a new partnership that Sigma has announced. It's a very lively episode, given that uh, Anna and Calvin are married, and they tend to finish each other's sentences, which, when you're recording on Zoom, and they're in different locations with varying quality of internet connections, It does take on a little bit of the character of dinner with the gardeners, and and I enjoyed that. So without further ado, Anna Cabral-Gardner and Calvin Gardner. Anna and Calvin, welcome to your second appearance on the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here again. Joe, as always, we're, we're delighted. This has been a big year for you guys. We talked last time about going into construction, and now you're in construction. Tell me a little bit about the details of your path forward on construction. Thanks, Joe. Well, yes. In our case, we felt it was more prudent to do a a front-end engineering design, which is a common sort of structure when you're doing a type of EPC project. So we spent a number of months uh, doing actually that. And what it really meant was we firmed up on the design. Now, this is for construction design, 30% of the plant. 30% of the total engineering was completed and we went into physical construction. So we did that. We completed the uh, the feed. It was initially started with Primero only doing the plant. And then later, as we announced, we brought in Promont halfway through the feed uh, who are doing the, the local infrastructure and Primero doing the plant design. From that, the 30% design, we physically went into construction, which we then announced. And that started with the earthworks itself. The earthworks is continuing. It's a three-month schedule, uh, and we'll expect to finish that 
that first earthquakes um, by the end of January. But it does also include certain sort of foundation concrete works. We well down the way, the, the earthworks, for example, for the crushing plant all being complete now. The design continues. So when you're saying the detailed design, it actually continues all the way up for eight months. So that continues. So the 30% now is moved up uh, to the next level. It allowed us obviously, to order the long lead items. These are all critical parts of the construction process. The long lead items increased to the DFS. And no surprise, I think worldwide, we've seen this happening with suppliers uh, having been closed and having backlogs and, and, and starting and some even starting up a bit slower. So these longer lead items become longer. And we had 38, in fact, at the end of the day, uh, which we then ordered upfront. We have signed agreements to do all the engineering so that we can make sure that we can get them delivered at the times uh, that we need them delivered. And, and, and obviously, when you do a detailed engineering, and as I said, it's normally in an EPC structure. And why is it in an EPC structure? Well, it's because the contractor is actually guaranteeing the price. He's guaranteeing the price of a construction. So he's at risk at it. So clearly, he wants to do enough engineering so that he can do that. So yes, he'll put some fat in it. I'm sure that's right. But he's confident enough to say, yes, I can build that. So we at Sigma took the view, well, hang on. It's obviously unprecedented times with this, with this virus and that we would do the same strategy. Why not? So exactly, exactly how we structured it, except it's still an EPCM, but we've gone in now with the same level of confidence that any EPC guy would have given you. So I think that's the advantage. For me personally, I think it perfectly, uh, it's a perfect way to do it because really you do see upfront what you're getting into and then you're going into an execution plan, Joe, that you really can kick off very strongly. And this is probably the biggest benefit that, that I received out of this was it allowed us to do a little bit more testing on certain things that were a little bit gray that I felt, and by the way, this area of lithium, this is where one does go wrong is because certain things are new. For example, we're the first people to dry stack lithium. There is no dry stacking done by any lithium mine. Now, it's all very well to say to do it. Let's see. And that took actually more test work than I actually thought. And we did a bunch of tests with a bunch of suppliers right up until the end before we got it right, Joe. So there's a bunch of advantages to do the way we did. Let's get into it. I'm into construction. And as I say, we're ordering the long lead items. And the typical long lead items that one would expect was heavy switch gear, power transformers, cyclones is a, is a big example, belt filters, thickeners, these sort of things, either the bigger items uh, and many of them imported, in fact. Deal. That's the next question. And given we're still living in a COVID world and seemingly, again, more so uh, with the new variant, you've gone out and put money up for these items, but you're still at risk with supply chain performance and stuff. So how? Yeah, look, that, 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 that is always going to be the case no matter what, right? You've got the United States blocked out because they can't get the ships into the port there on the, on, on, on the West Coast, right? Be it as it may, when you talk to the suppliers, there's two things that happen. There'd be more long lead items that got to the list and the long lead items tend to get longer, so yeah. you can see that they're building in, yes, they, they, they can't guarantee, look, if, they, if there was another sh complete shutdown, there's nothing I can do about that, Joe. But you can see that they have built in some, some extra sort of allowance for that. 
as we're getting numbers and timetables that they're based upon quoted items and signed um, manufacturing agreements, we are able to build that into the timetable and say, well, we're planning to commission this by the end of 2022 based on more um, confidence because we got quoted proposals as opposed to working off databases, databases and estimates. Joe, that's something obviously we can manage as far as we can. And we have hired a speciality company that does exactly this, procurement, so and importing things. So where they pick it up from the from the country of origin and bring it in. So we're trying everything we best we can uh, to try and alleviate, but it is a risk. Um, unfortunate, these are unprecedented times, uncharted. Yeah. To cut to the chase here, unless something gets markedly worse based on your best efforts and planning, you will be starting up a plan at the end of 2022. Yeah, I'm going to push like crazy. So unless, unless, like you say, borders all got shut down, well, then that's beyond what I can do. But right now, that's exactly the plan. And obviously, we allow a little bit of fat in it anyway. Otherwise, you know, I, you, you never remember the good things. So you only remember the bad things I do. So I'm always going to build some fat in. Everybody yeah. does. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it is. Yeah. So I'm pushed. But the answer is we'll be we'll be producing at that time. And quite frankly, from from and I don't read everything what people say, but obviously I pick up one or two things that you do say, is that that's when the market really will be wanting to see some material and hopefully we can help and, and provide it into into the customers around you know around the world. We're already oh, yeah, well there. then you're already there. When we talked early January, yeah. The price had just started to tick up and everybody was now uncertain. Is this yeah. I had predicted in 2019 that would spike at the end of 20 and then at the beginning of COVID, I said, no, it'll be later. And I was wrong correcting myself. You don't have to worry about the market collapsing if you're six months late because it's just going to keep building. I firmly believe that most of this decade, your $733 life of mine price assumption may have seen a little aggressive of a year and a half ago, and now it looks like it's just a really soft target. Yeah. Okay, so once you get everything, then it's on you. What happens is on you. Once everything is delivered and and you're, you've built everything, how fast a ramp-up are you projecting? How many months to get to full capacity of the first 220,000 tons? These plants, this whole thing, uh, it's a funny question that's really asked that, but bottom line is, Joe, you commission these plants in days. This is not. This is how these things run, right? But what happens in? The, and I remember we built a few of these plants, and you can ask anybody that's commissioned any DMS plant. What happens is that you're forever tweaking it, because what are you trying to do on these plants? You're always trying to up, increase the grade. Your core belief is that because it's a simple process, because you don't have the complexity of flotation that a DMS startup is days or weeks, not weeks or months. No, it's not weeks even. Well, I will be patting <laughs> you on the back because I am corrupted by the history of the lithium industry. And well, we hang on. <laughs> but then the question is, how well is it operating? What are the recoveries, Joe? There's a whole bunch well, of other questions I, okay. to come in. Let me clarify that's, my that question. Was my you know, yeah, you can turn the thing on and have it have it spitting it out at a 32% recovery, but that's not what you want. Question exactly. is, ramp up to me means where do I get to within a couple percent of what I said in my DFS or 
there's a bunch of questions on that because that's not just plant again. Because of all according, if the guys are mining waste instead of sending the right material, then nothing will work as well. So that, now you're talking about the whole operation point. I am it talking never, about the it whole operation. And it never, so my answer to you, that never stops. Okay. It just okay. always, you're always tweaking this thing. We've gone never, from a... And, a, and these, in, in a diamond <laughs> pond, which we ran before, it's even, you imagine, right? You can't throw them things away. It's forever happening. You're forever challenging that exact fact. That's why when you say the commission, well, guys, you're always fighting the recovery. It's a daily fight, which will continue yeah. for the life of this mine. But, I, but, I should have, but I should have clarified yeah. my question. My question really <laughs> on ramp up is when, when I, when I, what I consider a ramp up is how I get from starting the plan up to reasonable operating parameters that I'm happy to take to the market which includes recovery and includes my mind guys aren't running a lot of garbage into my process. Yeah. So that's really where I am. So you're, we've gone from a three day ramp up to endless ramp up kind of. Yeah. But, but I would expect to be saying something within the first month of the, because it's a DMS process, Joe. Yeah. Okay. I would be able to saying something in that first month about how well we're doing. And in your case, flotation, is not economically justified by the incremental benefit you would get from it. I want the technology to get a bit better, but right not now, yes. Well, that, well, yeah, but that's that's the whole point. If, no. if you're going for 60% recovery or 62% recovery, whatever your last number is, We're there. and you say, I can put this capital in for flotation, it's got to justify the economic benefit of the incremental recovery. That's my point. Yeah. No, but, but because that's the whole point, right? When we made the decision, we didn't make the decision in a vacuum. In other words, why did we go with DMS technology? I mean, first and foremost, because we can, right? In other words, the large right. crystal formation and the fact that you recovered beautifully well, and again, not in a vacuum. We ran that for three years, three years, and that was painful because we were not getting the benefit of the revenue. We were just, you know, bulk sampling. And the quantities kept on getting larger and larger and larger. Hence, the caliber of the agreements we got with the battery makers. So during three years, we actually have a, quite a lot of data on how the technology, the DMS technology performs with the mineralogy of what we got there. So as we made the final trade-off decision, early detail engineering, it was pretty clear that the added time to commissioning, time to pull ramp, the added risks, the added environmental hurdle and environmental costs, right, of going with flotation for the mineralogy we have wouldn't trade off based on what we do and our purpose, I mean, which is to deliver this in an environmentally sustainable way with the added uh, recovery. So at 60% recovery, and some of the data shown that number to be conservative, I mean, it turned out that we're well positioned with dense media separation across the board, environmentally, technologically, commercially, because by that we don't have to then crush to fines. So we have a course of product, which has its own significant technical commercial advantages, as you know. And then last, lastly, on time to commissioning. So there was just not a question in our mind at coming out of these testing that DMS was a superior choice. And that goes back to the point of perfecting it, because 
we obviously have the benefit of everyone else's trials. And that's why we have so much respect for the pioneers of this industry in Australia, because we learn from, from what they went through, right? And even on the plant, the engineers on this learn from what they had to go through in other plants, the Primero guys. So what we, what we put in together here, and even for our own demonstration plant, which is a simpler uh, DMS type, so manual, right? So we've gone from the manual to the automatic to the um, digitalized version of this. And that's on the back of our own three-year experience, plus all the metallurgy we ran to be absolutely sure when we made the trade-offs. Obviously, we do not want to leave recovery behind, but there's a moment when, when it becomes a trade-off and other intangibles, such as environmental sustainability, which for us has been very tangible, coming to play in full force. Okay, I'm just going to stick up for my home state of North Carolina because when I started in this business, we were doing flotation in North Carolina. Well, wow. <laughs> so yeah. let's let's give North Carolina equal billing back in the day with the, the Aussies. I think you all have some other good news you want to talk about, Anna. Oh, yeah. Would you like to tell us about your recent successes in uh, it, it, the, the it's capital nice markets? Seg- yeah, it's a nice segue, I think. I think everything kind of comes one next to the other, right? We, we announced today, and, and it's interesting because we scheduled this podcast weeks ago, but it turned out to be very fortuitous <laughs> that we announced today an investment by a fund and account managed by BlackRock of uh, $64 million Canadian dollars. So they became Sigma's second largest shareholder after a 10 fund, which for us allows us to, again, nice segue because we fully fund this construction for phase one. Moreover, we're going to further develop phase two and phase three of, you know, Agrata do Cirilo. And, and therefore, I mean, we can execute the whole, right? The, the, the build out of that project to the levels of, of demand that we're seeing in the market. So ultimately, it's more than just the investment. It's about the validation. I mean, BlackRock has been an, uh, a shareholder since the IPO in Canada in 2018. And for us, it was humbling and, and it was a great honor to get them to increase their shareholding in such a meaningful way at the critical juncture for the company as we enter construction because it's a validation of everything we've done thus far and the way we conducted uh, ourselves as executives and, and leaders of the company thus far in terms of upholding governance, because the G, ESG starts with the G, is the G driving the environmental and social sustainability. And, and it's a validation of continuing to do this with this purpose of of showing that it's actually economically possible, economically very viable and very accretive to the shareholders to continue to develop this project centered around environmental and social sustainability. So for us, it's a great achievement. We are so humbled and proud and obviously feel now the weight of the responsibility, but I mean, we have no words. Let's take a step back on the whole process, though. You had an original number and then it was, I don't know what the, if oversubscribed is the right word. <laughs> and uh, and then it, 
it ramped up again. I think there's been three announcements on this. We upsized it. We were done on Monday, right? And then, um, and then we we started this dialogue. I mean, and and all of a sudden we decided that it was because of what we said. It isn't be it's beyond the investment. BlackRock is the largest fund manager in the world. Yes. Uh, and they've been a leading voice in global sustainability. So for us, the backing of a leading voice gives us the strength to continue to develop this the way we believed in and we've done for six years and they we've publicly done for now almost four years, right? With them as part of the shareholder base. So the beauty of it is that we bring that validation of a third party around the governance and around the purpose and around the environmental and social sustainability. It, it couldn't have come at a better, more fortuitous time because now that the industry enters into this great lithium decade, as you say it, I mean, one thing for sure we know and all of us know is that the industry will need quite a lot of lithium. But one thing for sure that we know is that this lithium needs to be brought to the market in a way in harmony with the planet. That's going to be a problem for the whole decade. The industry really, when you entered the industry, it was not ESG focused. I think that's a fair a fair statement. I grew up in the industry. It's about what the emphasis of the society at the time is. Let's just say it was less focused on ESG at the time. Great and point, you, but you know why? You know why? Because the end user wasn't EV. That consumer that pays more for that car wants to know he's making a difference. So there has to be consonance with what the consumer wants, meaning you make a difference environmentally and socially across the board on the supply chain. We we put our money behind that for six years, right? And one of our shareholders that's been with us on this journey for almost four years is just now redoubled. And more than that, they... They increased their commitment and they shown to the world their commitment. Considering they're the largest asset manager in the world, that means quite a lot to this, meaning, yes, the world needs a lot of lithium, but it has to be developed in harmony with the planet. I, I guess I guess I would push back on it that, that, that simple because I've sat in a courtroom this year watching environmentalists try to stop a mine in the United States And everybody doesn't believe that mining can be done sustainably ever. There's a lot of people out there that just take the position that mining's bad, end of story. Even though they're driving SUVs and they're tweeting on their iPhone, which is a collection of mine materials. I see this as as much more complicated, and, and I give you kudos because... Honestly, you refer to yourself as a hippie on the last podcast, and I think Larry Fink picks the hippie to do his ESG bet in lithium. I think that that's great. But you were out there with the whole narrative on what seemed at the beginning a contradiction, your hard rock, your mining, and your green and sustainable to a lot of people on this planet, those are contradictions that will never be resolved. Exactly. And that's why we put our capital behind this project, because we've done that at a critical juncture, not for lithium, for the whole mining industry in, in the country where the mine is. The first tailing dam had collapsed. 
And mining single-handedly had lost its social licensing to operate in the country. In a country where almost 40% of the current account balance relied on natural resources, mining specifically. So these two things were not in consonance because an emerging economy that needed mining to become a developed economy, but where mining was basically abhorred by the population. So how do you resolve that contradiction? Well, by demonstrating that mining can live in consonance with the environment, with the people. So that was the only way in our minds. Most of my peers in impact investing ran away from the natural resources industry. We dove right into the problem with the purpose of showing that it was actually possible. And it was beyond just the discourse because we made economic decision after economic decision. We were just talking about BMS and flotation in a fantastic way because we can't get into that level of detail where we've forsaken that extra bit, that extra squeeze, that extra dollar. Calvin was the one backing not to do a super pit. That was the hardest one because we were still pre doing the previsibility. First deposit, the maiden foothold deposit, Calvin was the one backing to leave 25% of the reserve to preserve the little water stream. For a junior company, I mean, we were so criticized for it. And ultimately, it paid off beautifully because for the community, it was an unmistakable sign that we were prepared to put our values before that extra return. And, and I think we've done that over and over again from then to now onward. And ultimately, I think that that's what shows, right? The How can I put it? The, the consistency of what we've done throughout these years over and over again making those decisions because there was a greater purpose to show that it was possible to deliver these materials in a sustainable way. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zolandes, who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zolandes Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zelandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. When you talk about battery-grade green sustainable lithium concentrate, that is almost like flipping, flipping the old model on its head. I'll make the confession that I've said for many years, you don't get battery grade at the concentrate level. You go out there and you change a few things and, and, and maybe you do, but I've always said that the, the battery grade comes at the chemical process. Yet, you have stuck to your guns and on this clean ore body that you have or ore bodies that you have. You've gotten traction to the point where I'll say, not that you can't call it battery grade, but I'll rephrase it. Why can you call it battery grade, green, sustainable? Because we create that advantage for the battery maker. Because it's so pure, it's coarse, it enables the battery maker more choices. In other words, there is a sizable margin there that comes from the fact that less processing is needed at that very last mile when you know, the chemical converter needs to deliver in spec, in high spec, in the case of advanced batteries, 
uh, hyperylithium hydroxide. It's less work because it comes in this battery grade high purity coarse form. So we basically enable our client, the battery maker, with choices of chemical converters. More chemical converters can do the job of achieving certification, high purity levels, if they are given that product to process. That is the critical point. That's exactly, exactly. she hit the nail on the head, Joe. You've had the top experts, frankly, that you can give them anything and they'll be able to do this battery grade. But now you've got all the newer guys coming in because of volume that don't have those years and years and years of experience that these others have. So it's like anything else. Better it is to start with, the higher the probability of ending up. And that's what we've been able to show. And that's why we've sent so much material and built the pilot. But nobody built pilot plants. If people looked at me and said, I was a crazy guy. But we sent because it, it's not something you could just talk to. They had to test and test and test. And that's the difference, Joe. In my view, that's the driver. I'll take a corollary to that argument in that you're now in a world and when I started out selling chemicals to cathode makers in the 90s, the battery guys cared about the cathode. The lithium made no difference to them. And they sure didn't go upstream asking about our rock. Because <laughs> at, at the beginning of this industry, 100% of the battery quality material was hard rock material. Yeah. I've said it a lot, but most people don't care. And, and don't go back to that level of detail. But now you're in a world, you entered into a world where the battery guys and the big OEMs were saying, okay, we have this ESG agenda that we need to be in compliance with. The battery industry didn't have that for the first two decades it was in existence. Nobody talked about it. So what you've done is actually taken things that I wouldn't have scoffed at, but I would have just said, hey, nobody asks about this. And now... You're taking the advantage of your R body and marketing it in the frame that has evolved. This has been a journey that I've been through for 30 some years now. I've changed how I think about this a little bit just because of what you've done. Oh my God, I'm delighted. That that <laughs> made my year. Okay. Not allowed to, you're year. not allowed to edit that part out. No, that made my year. And, and I'll tell you that for two reasons. Just shelve the ESG side of things for a second. We started at a Nova supply market in 2019, pre-pandemic, and we already had the commitments there. Why? On technical merits of what Calvin was saying, because we learned throughout 19, and we spent quite a lot of time in China, sometimes even together. Uh, what we learned is that by selecting the technology, we could actually keep the product coarse. We could deliver coarse to size. And then when you couple that with the high purity that we were able to consistently achieve, all of a sudden we worked out that test after test after test from clients and from labs that coarse high purity, you need less of it. So on sheer cost concerns, because at that moment, remember, this, the, the biggest concern for everyone was can I achieve costs? Can I actually drive further lower battery costs, right? Everyone was going for that holy grail of batteries costing less than $100 per kilowatt hour, right? So, so how can that be possibly done? So we come up with this product where 
you need less, you need 7.2 tons of that product to make a ton of very high purity lithium hydroxide. And that is incredible because we're comparing with 9.5 to 10 tons. Well, assuming you, yeah, assuming you have a good converter, though. I mean, Calvin's point well, from before that, but, too is you got to have the guys who know what they're doing. Well, yeah. yes, but then this is the whole point. Who is a good converter when you're given this product? Because there's such a there's such an incredible tradition of chemistry of lithium chemistry in China. We opened up the list. All of a sudden, the definition of a good converter, because they're so experienced, goes to the top ten. What the bottom five didn't have was access to high purity, to a product of this caliber. So that's why we call it battery grade, because parking the ESG issue for a second, when you deliver this high purity, over 6% concentrate, low levels of potassium, low levels of sodium, which are the big impediments, the alkalines are a big stumble block on certification, right? So low alkaline, low iron, and all of a sudden you need sometimes 30% less of that material to make a ton of high purity hydroxide. Well, you're enabling a, a good part of the industry to get there on a chemical side. So this is why we're seen by our end customers now, the battery makers as enablers, because this material opens up the possibilities on these existing very experienced, very experienced converters that unfortunately didn't have the access to, to, to that caliber of material because the material was in the hands of the integrated uh, players. This is a pretty recent thing. All right. Well, I think that's how it is, guys. Right now, I think the world is opening up there. And as I say, like anything, the quality of in what goes in comes up, not just in lithium, by the way, in a lot of products. So this is one of those classics. But the battery industry feels the, the pressure from the car makers to keep their costs down. So I think ultimately the battery industry, our customers, they've been reacting to that pressure. So they were at, at odds, I think partly because the volumes projected by the industry as a whole weren't so large. So the battery industry was at odds, uh, especially last year, on how to figure out that equation. How am I going to get these larger volumes, keep the cost of the battery down, and then now, then let's bring it back the issue. And... All of that has to be environmentally sustainable because we don't get a green premium as we openly talked about it, right? So, so these three pieces of the equation, environmental sustainability, low cost, high volumes, they are sometimes contradicting each other. I just was saying a lot of the decisions we made to stay, to remain environmentally sustainable involve in sacrificing returns. What we felt though, because of the kind of capital the back does was that as we took it to the shareholders, uh, took it to the board, I mean, felt the license to go ahead and make those decisions because of the nature of our backing. At the end of the day, your ore body is the critical piece of the pie. Technology may change, but if you're going to go to a 2 million ton world by 2030, you're going to have to have a lot of ore bodies that don't have the spec you have your advantage just based on your ore body will continue to serve you well the cost curve is only going north unless we have a breakthrough in technology that's probably not going to happen in the next five to seven years yes there's the ore body but we honored it 
by maintaining the integrity of the technology of the process because we could have gone flotation, crushed it to fines and made product like everybody else. I think the, the key thing was to maintain the integrity of the old body through the technology we chose. We like to say that, you know, if it wasn't for the technology, yeah, the whole, the old body is there, but um, every lithium producer in Brazil will be delivering this beautiful battery grade green concentrate. And you know, it's not the case, right? So I think here it, it's, it's more than that. But yes, we've been blessed and we start with great product, but we honored it by investing in that processing technology at a time when it wasn't a focus. It's like, oh, why bother, right? We bothered because for us, making it sustainable was an important thing. It was critical, actually. Okay. I want to ask you about one other thing. Last time we talked about partners and you talked a lot about Mitsui, but you have added partner since then. You want to talk about your relationship with uh, LG? It's a commercial relationship, right? So it's it's kind of different. We, again, we're honored um, and delighted because it's been a journey to the extent that we got, we had to go through the sampling, through the certification, through the engagement. We're now looking forward to hopefully a, a signing ceremony, a closing ceremony in, in Seoul, uh, where we've never been. Right, Calvin? He's very excited to go to Seoul. Kyle, do you it it may be a little it? while because Korea closed this week. So. Yeah, no. See, this, these things are planned for. Yeah. But they are, they've been delightful to work with. In, in fairness, uh, I was quite surprised, relatively humble, quite frankly, really humble, uh, considering the LG, right? Uh, and yes, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to to the real. Obviously, in terms of what they're doing, is very impressive, and we'd be happy to be part of their of their team there, helping what we can do there, Joe. Okay. Any other points you want to make? Well, we we've always enjoyed our dialogue with you, and and we are we feel the weight of the responsibility. We do feel the weight. What I like to say is, I've never had more hope than now for the industry and for all of us because lithium and you you as a veteran you've lived to see this day it's like joe you're meeting your moment as a lithium expert like we're meeting our moment as sustainable lithium producers because all the things we believed in you've always believed the lithium would be mainstream and the v's would become the, the basically most common form of transportation all the things we believed in are now not the future, they're the present. And it's a, our challenge to make sure the present continues to be the future. I think that's what I'd like to be. It's, it's on us, right? To, to make sure that, for example, hard rock mining is viewed as good for the societies we, where, where they take place, where we are. Our community adores Sigma because they, they feel lifted with what we do and we do lift them. I mean, to this day, We've already enabled the serving of 1.3 million meals for the people who were left behind by the pandemic. We basically, we picked them up um, and we lifted them, lifted them back to eating, right? It's that basic. So the, the point of no, no one left behind is all encompassing. ESG is the S. Is the E, is the S, is the G, these letters are just not, not just letters. So finally, after six years, we've been recognized by that work that we've done since ever by basically probably the leading voice now 
in global sustainability, which is BlackRock, right? So we're, we feel we're meeting our moment. And you, I mean, you used to talk about a, a, an industry that was kind of niche and all of a sudden, you're, you know, mainstream commentator. <laughs> I personally believe that because lithium got a little bit of a, a late start and EVs jumped out ahead, that lithium will be the limiting factor on battery production for five to seven years. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that there's going to be some magic bullet that we can't see right now? With the price going, I mean, you look at the prices this morning in the Platts email, it's 33000 for carbonate in North Asia crazy, spot yeah. market. And that's only because it's short. Price doesn't quadruple when it's in supply balance. And this is just the beginning. I mean, what you saw in 2021, I mean, look at all the EV models, look at all the announcements. How long do you think there's going to be a tight market? Just your your sense. I don't know. I think it's hard because it's tight. I, I don't like to talk about deficits, but I think it's hot. It's tight, clearly tight. In great part, and we, we spend quite a lot of time on that with investors, what happened? It's pretty clear to us because we are inside the trenches of volumes and forecasts and all of that from the end user. That's why we, we enjoy so much the dialogue we got with uh, the South Koreans, because we're right there having you know, a discussion with the end user. End user is in the best vantage point because they look at the auto industry and they see the the forecasts and they look upstream and they see what's going on, right? And now, because they've gone past midstream, there used to be a wall on midstream and they didn't have visibility. Now they see fully what's going on upstream. So they're sitting there with the best vantage point and, and you've seen our agreements, right? They're quite large. So I think ultimately here, what I like to believe in is that we're in a tight spot, yes, but technology can solve some of these challenges. What the market is telling upstream producers is go ahead and restart these mines. So high cost is okay. So everyone is being given a license to restart their mines. And why is that? Because the uptake in demand from Europe has literally caught the entire supply chain by surprise. And currently, 23% of all new passenger cars sold in Germany are EVs. That wasn't predicted. That wasn't expected. And the, the supply chain wasn't prepared for it. It was too fast. So all of a sudden, you have these readjustments happening all the way upstream because that's a phenomenal thing that's happened to this industry, which all of a sudden lifted the EV industry into the mainstream. It came out of the pandemic as a mainstream. No one challenges anymore that EVs are here to stay and it will be eventually 100% of the fleet. Problem is, in this short term, we're all going through this arrangement of tectonic plates. I mean, where, what is the incentive price? Well, that's, where, that's the, the, the question, in essence, is how long is the short term? Well, yeah, That's Joe, my answer to your question was slightly different. Is that, you know, yes, lithium was last to the party. And, you know, you had some sort of damning reports just a couple of years ago. And investment dried up. You want exactly. to see now, 
You want yeah. to see how fast that investment can get back. There are plenty of places that can be can be developed, but they they were all stopped. And even worse, some of the mines that opened were closed. So come on. So if, we, if we're serious yeah. about this, they've got yeah. to be more investment straight into yeah. this industry and get those things up and running. I thought investment was the problem up until now. Look at what's happened in Argentina. The capital's there now. But now you've got the whole execution issue. And True. what Joe Biden wants half the cars to be electric by 2030, but the other part of the party says, we don't want mining. It's, no. it's, it's, well, the, all that, all it has that, to, there has to be a balance, right? Exactly. Exactly. So we're, we're living through it. That's why it's an interesting time. Good discussion. And I, I would take the other side of that. I, I lived in where the industry really started. And now the people in the County where it started don't want mining. Yeah. So, I mean, it's this is a thing that's going to be fits and starts around the world. And and you're able to you're lifting people up. You're doing all that. And that's great. But there's other parts of the world where look at what happened in Serbia the last week. Riots over mining. So it's it's going to it's it's going to be interesting. That's why it's an interesting place to be. I'm not even going to do rapid fire with you guys because I know Calvin didn't really like it anyway. And uh, if I asked Calvin, if you were going to make a phone call to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell him? I'd get some kind Keep of sarcastic response. Way. <laughs> yeah. No, for me, it's simple. I wouldn't change anything what I've done. Do the same thing. Okay. Anna, would you change anything that you've done? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I don't really look back that much, but I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Well... <laughs> We will leave it there. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks, this Joe. Is, this is going to be the hardest episode to edit that I've ever done. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> oh, it was great, though. As all but, things. I get so carried away. And, and well, I'm the problem when, you have, when you're doing three mics like this, the separation gets really tricky because we're talking over each other. So that's the problem. I, yeah, I, know. I guess yeah, that would be wonderful. the case. Yeah, I uh, will see. It's we'll wonderful see what... to be here. We love to be here. Even just talking to you for an hour, even if it's not aired. It's yeah, I actually forget you recording sometimes, Joe. Sorry, man. No, yeah. it's it's yeah. it's fine. Me too. No, I get this, carried this, away. This may know, turn out to be. An hour that's a 30-minute podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So much more fun. And you understand this. Thank you. All right. Ciao, Joe. Have a great Christmas if we don't talk. Merry Merry Christmas. We'll talk soon. Merry Christmas, my friend. For time reference, this podcast was recorded on December 17th. Unfortunately, my Christmas plans, my wife and I went up to New York to spend time with my children, got in the way of putting this online. But it is still timely as it's only 11 days since we recorded it. I want to wish everybody a very happy new year. And I'm going to close with a Chinese proverb that is totally unrelated from this podcast. But I'll leave it up to you to wonder why I am saying Tian Gao, Wan Di Yuan. Heaven is high and the emperor is far away. In the next few days, I will be putting my stream of consciousness analysis of the past year in lithium and some thoughts on 2022 on LinkedIn, and uh, I'll link it to my website. Thanks to all the great guests who participated this year, and again, 
happy 